real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns. and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. All right, welcome back everybody. Nathan Romas with you again. Today we are going to be discussing leadership, legalities, and SWAT. And for that, I've got Inspector Kevin Sear on the program. Kevin has over 20 years with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. He's worked in areas on both sides of the house, from patrol to major crimes, drugs, intel and organized crime, and community policing. Currently, Kevin is the officer in charge of the Lower Mainland District's Integrated Emergency Response Team, or SWAT for uh, layman terms. Uh, Kevin has a Bachelor of Science in Mathematics from St. Francis Xavier University, a Certificate of Police Leadership from Dalhousie University, and his Master of Laws in Criminal Law and Procedure from Osgoode Hall Law School, which is at York University, if I'm correct. You got it. So, um, welcome, Kevin. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, so I think uh, we were just kind of talking before hitting the record here, but um, I, we're going to get into a paper that you were a part of, and it's comparing Canadian and U.S. Uh, SWAT teams, and we'll just use the term SWAT because it thinks it's the most common common vernacular. But before we get into that and some other things, um, I want to know about you. So can you tell us about yourself and where you come from and how you got into this? crazy world. Yeah, sure thing. Uh, so I grew up on the East coast of Canada in New Brunswick and sort of always wanted to be a police officer. I wanted some sort of action job and kind of, you know, in my eight-year-old head, always want to do something with, you know, special operations. You know, that's kind of just what I had in mind. I, I mean, of course it didn't mean anything at that point. Um, and the way that that started to materialize or I guess crystallize through high school was a career with the RCMP. Um, I'm, I was from New Brunswick. The RCMP was the only police force I knew, um, but I wanted to be on a SWAT team. Like that's what I wanted to do. I didn't know a lot about the military at the time. Uh, if I knew then what I know now, I probably would have went that route first. Mm. But at the time, you know, 1995, military was in shambles. They just came off the Somali affair. Um, they were in the position then that policing is today, sort of vilified in the media. And that drove me away from, from military. So I, so I wanted to be a police officer. But back then, man, it was hard. It's not like today where, you know, you apply and they're glad to have you. It's like there was a high rejection rate. So you always had to have a backup plan. So my backup plan was I went to university and studied mathematics. Uh, I started in physics, but uh, by about third year, I was, I was enjoying my math courses more than my physics courses. And believe it or not, there's a ton of career opportunities for math majors, which I didn't know about. Um, so while I was finishing my math degree, I was applying to the RCMP for the second time. They had rejected me for the first time. And, uh, and I think I applied to my second year of university. In my fourth year, I was going through my second uh, application process. And uh, at the end of university, I had three options. I could have gone to do my master's in software engineering. I had a, a nice scholarship to do that. I had a job offer as an actuary, which they make a lot of money <laughs> doing financial analysis. And the Mounties called and said, hey, we got a spot for you uh, at Depot. What do you want to do? So uh, I was actually had already started my master's in software engineering and left my books on the prof's desk. And uh, it was like early September before the term had started. We were just doing some pre-work and uh, sent him an email, said, hey, man, I'm going to be a cop. See you later. And I just wanted to go drive a police car and drive with lights and sirens and, and fight bad guys. So that's what I did. So, um, wow, those are quite the opposite ends of the spectrum. I would say uh, an actuary or software engineer to, you know, going out and being in the thick of things and driving the car. What do you think? Um, do you think most people kind of have that ability to be uh, two things at once? Or is, it, uh, is that just something that has actually been a part of your life? Have you always been an outdoors person and kind of wanted to be out there? Well, you know, it's, it's funny. I just am interested in a lot of different things and it's a bit of a curse because I'm never satisfied. I'm always thinking, you know, oh, I should go do that other thing. And, you know, I've got, I'll give you an example. I've got my dream job right now. 
I get to work on one of the busiest SWAT teams and biggest SWAT teams in North America with just an incredible group of guys. And, you know, sometimes my phone rang. I was like, hey, there's this job coming open. And, you know, it's, it's you know, researching policy or, or you know, analyzing business structures of, of what we do. It's like, ooh, that sounds kind of cool. And I get enticed by it, you know, and it, mm-hmm. it usually fades pretty quickly. But uh, I, I wish I was one of those guys that was only interested in one thing, but I'm not. And it's, it's the bane of my existence. Well, I think it's like, uh, it speaks to just having a high drive, right? And you're never, like you said, you're never satisfied. So you always kind of want to see things through to the end, but you're always looking for that next opportunity. And that's kind of the people we look for, I would imagine on this job. Like it's, I would think that's what recruiting, um, you know, those are some of the main people they want. You don't want someone who just comes in as like, yeah, I just kind of want to do this and kind of want to be out there. Well, well, that's it. Like, you know, that's what attracted me to policing and the RCMP in particular. I, I think the RCMP has got a few disadvantages, but one of our competitive advantages in the policing universe is just the variety and spectrum of, of jobs you can do. So, you know, in my 22 years now, I've done patrol, I've done drug work, I've done criminal intelligence, I've done major crime, I've done uh, child sex offenses, and I've settled into emergency response team. But I've done all those different things without sacrificing seniority with, you know, whilst pursuing uh, promotional opportunities and while building a pension. What other job can you do that in? And I think in any large agency, you, ha- you have that diversity of career opportunity. It's pretty cool. Did you have any family or friends that were kind of going in this direction as well, or somebody that might have pushed you in this direction? Zero. I cannot <laughs> trace where this came from. I've, I have no clue. Do you have any family currently in on the job? Nope. Oh, nothing. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> nothing, man. Like it's a, I'm an outlier. Like it's, there you go. Yeah. I know. I just remember what, you know, being in grade three and the police car drove by and I waved at him and he waved back and I ran home to tell my mom and that seemed to seal the deal. Do you think a lot of this uh, drive for this and you're saying like you wanted to be in some sort of... Uh, special ops or SWAT type role? Is that just like uh, from maybe the movies or cartoons you watched as you were growing up? Yeah, you know, I remember my mom buying me a Time Life book about special operations. And there's, you know, like a chapter on the Navy SEALs and Mm. a chapter on the Green Berets and a chapter on the SAS. And I, I, I could, if I saw that book today, I would know what every page was. Like I just read it all the time. It was just, you know, I'm interested in a lot of what things. But that just captivated me, you know, mm-hmm. like, just as a kid, like, you know, nine-year-old Kevin would be pretty happy right now with, with what we get to do every day. So, <laughs> um, so can you kind of walk us a bit through your career? So, I mean, you've been in a number of units, uh, where have you spent your time? Like, is it across Canada, one province, uh, and walk us through just some of the jobs that you have done? Sure. So I start, I've done it all in British Columbia. I'm from New Brunswick. I, I'll never go back east again. I, there's so much opportunity in British Columbia and the weather's quite agreeable, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so my first posting was a place called New Hazleton. So the way they do it in depot is you show up, you sign up to the RCMP. You don't know where you're going. They, some, I think they're starting to do pre-posting agreements now, but you sign the dotted line saying, I am willing to go anywhere in Canada. And they don't tell you, I think for about, you know, of the six month training program at depot, it's not until like month four or five that you find out where you're going and it's a big day. So they give you a form at about month three, you know, cause you haven't washed out. You say, where are your top picks? And I'm like, well, you know, I'm like a young, like I'm like 22 years old, single. I want to go to a big city. So I think I wrote down like Nanaimo and Kelowna and Victoria, like nice, super nice places. And um, posting day comes and they gather you all in a room and they start reading out where you're going. And I'm from New Brunswick. And so they say, Sir, like, Corporal, you're going to New Hazleton. I'm like, well, that wasn't on my list. So I look over to a guy from in my troop who was from British Columbia and he just shrugs his shoulders. Like he's he doesn't know he's like, I don't know where that is either. I'm like, oh man, that's not good. So there's this little saying: if you if your posting starts with New Fort or Prince, you're kind of in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started looking on the map and I looked, I was looking around you know, Kelowna, which is very middle of the province. 
And my facilitator, the corporal, he starts laughing at me. He's like, brother, you're going to have to look further north on the map for that. So you know, I kept going up. So New Hazel is a very, very small town. It's like, I think it was like three small uh, towns and then uh, seven reserves. Huge area, nine police officers, like total. So worked a lot on my own. Like that was back before we had backup policy. We used to do a lot of stuff on our own. You wouldn't dream of doing that today. Mm-hmm. It was a terrible place for them to put a, a single guy, but I ended up meeting my wife up there because she, she was working in the next attachment over. So we've been married now 20 years. Um, but uh, the work is fantastic, you know, because it's not like in the big city where you, you go to a big file and the detectives swoop in and do the investigation. Man, there are no detectives. Like, like you're it. Mm-hmm. Like one of my first calls was, you know, like a, a multiple stabbing. And I mean, you know, from, from Edmonton, like, what one year constable is going to you know get to do that? Like no one, like yeah. you're not going to take that. Yeah, there's no one else there. So it's a fantastic place to learn. Um, I started handling a lot of confidential informants and doing a lot of drug work, which is I, I really like that stuff as well. And just sort of cut my teeth on a lot of different things. So I was there two and a half years. It was a limited duration posting, and then we got our transfer to Vernon, which is. I think that place has maybe like 60 or 70 police officers. No, maybe not even that big. Um, but it's a, it's a mid-sized city. Yeah. And I did patrol there for a year and a half. And then I switched over to the drug section. And when you went to drugs, it, it, that just keeps you in the lower mainland? No, this was in Vernon. So it's still the oh, interior still. of the province. Okay. Yeah. So we had a like, you know, three-member drug section. And when you're working in drugs, because there's so many units that kind of work in this realm, but... When you're working in drugs, is that specific groups, like specific organized crime groups, or is it just like your local drug dealers? Do you have a, a certain type of focus? Yeah, we were primarily focused on just the, you know, just the low level guys at the time as well. There was a lot of, well, there was a, a big organized crime presence in uh, grow ops. So this organized crime ring would take recent immigrants, buy them a house. They would use them as like a straw man purchaser mm. to get the, the loan. And then they'd be forced to, you know, turn over crops in their basement and cause just massive damage to the house. And every year we'd have a few people die from fires, it seemed. Jeez. Um, so we targeted that quite a lot. Actually, at one point, we led the province in like just our two officer section, me and me and my partner, Brian, we led the, the province in, uh, in uh, real estate seizures oh, yeah. uh, under civil forfeiture. Act. Yeah, just because we, we just got into this group and we're, we're able to crack the code and just uh, roll them up big time. So it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, and so where do you go from drug unit? Uh, I popped over to major crime. Uh, also still, still staying in, in uh, Vernon. We worked a big file. You can actually Google it. Um, there was a gang named the Greeks. I mean, this is like a small town. Vernon's got what? 40, 50,000 people. Mm. And this organized crime group got entrenched. I say organized crime, but they were kind of small time, but they were so entrenched and so emboldened that they just started murdering people. And I think, if memory serves, we were investigating, I think, five to seven murders, something in that realm, all connected to this group. And it was a massive undertaking. We had a bunch of resources surged from, from outside to, to help us take these guys down. Uh, it was a big wiretap operation, undercover stuff. It was a, v- a very big file. So I was, I was really lucky to get involved in that one. Wow. So... From there, um, you eventually kind of end up in doing the, the ERT, which is SWAT. Um, how do you go from doing these heavy investigation units to the operational side again? <laughs> well, well, I might, I might disagree that e- SWAT is not operational. I, m- I might not choose that word, but uh, <laughs> or sorry, that the major it, crime stuff's not operational. Yeah, <laughs> but I know what you mean. Street yeah, level. Yeah tip of the spear sort of thing. So I actually went down to, I got a promo to Surrey. I was working Surrey major crime. And my particular expertise was writing search warrants, search warrant applications. Like I was, like I did a lot of them, like hundreds of them. Mm -hmm. And I was arguing with crown counsel over something once. And I know she was wrong and I was right. I knew it, but she dismissed me by saying, Kevin, if you'd gone to law school, you'd understand this. Mm. And so I got so mad that I went home and I applied to law school. So that's how I ended up. (laughs) doing my law degree at, uh, at Osgood. So I spent, I, whilst I was doing that, it was a heavy lift. Like it was a full-time master's program while working full-time with a two-year-old at home. 
It just, Jeez. I don't know why I did it. I don't even know how I, I don't have a me- any memory of that, of that. Uh, it was just awful. <laughs> um, but I went to a, a, like a uniform community policing role that there just wasn't any overtime. So that that's how I managed that. Um, when I was finishing that, I'm like, man, like what's next for me in my career. And because I had done in those smaller detachments, I had been a part-time SWAT guy. Like, you know, you do your regular job and you do part-time. So I'd, I'd dip my toe a bit in, in that water. I had the qualifications, like as in I had gone to the course to go to the full-time team. Um, but I was a corporal and I didn't have the KSAs. Like the number of calls these guys were doing and the skill level they were operating at was far beyond what I could have provided as a supervisor. At this time, you've already done the selection course and, and gone through like a bunch of training. You're working part-time as ERT or SWAT? That's right. Yes. Yeah. As a collateral duty team. So like all over the province, there's a full-time team down in like the Vancouver area, but everyone mm. else is just part-time. Like you do it off the side of your desk, you get your training hours, you go to call-outs, but other than that, you're doing your regular patrol job. So I had done that with the North district team. And then when I, but I had my little check mark of, Hey, this guy is SWAT trained. Mm-hmm. So when I finished my law degree, I actually emailed staffing and said, Hey, I want to re- resign my rank, demote myself and go to the full-time team as a constable. And uh, they're like, Oh, that's, I mean, <laughs> like you just finished law school and you want to go do that. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, Career planning is not my strong suit. Um, <laughs> the boss there actually is like, hey, Kevin, I could use you as an NCO working in the training section. We've got some policy problems we, that we want to deal with. We've got some scheduling challenges. So actually, they took me over as a, a corporal. Uh, and I was able to you know, be fully operational, do calls whilst doing the, the, the training section stuff. And then uh, I promoted to sergeant in that training job. Okay. So once you're sergeant... Are you still operational, we'll say, <laughs> but like out there with the team, like on the ground, or now are you more yep. in a command structure? Uh, at that point, no, I was still operational. Of course, it's limited. There's different demands on the job, but one of the basic tenets of our of our entire team, even to this day, I mean, that, that was back in 2015, 14, mm-hmm. uh, something like that. Even to this day is everyone on the team is fully operational at all times. You have to keep up your physical standards. You have to keep up your shooting standards. There's no just admin guy. Mm-hmm. Everyone is fully operational at all times. Wow. So what's the workload like for you now? Uh, as far as our, our unit's call volume? Yeah. Yeah. Last year we hit uh, 230 calls. I think of that, we, did, we do about five hostage takings and kidnappings per, per year. We respond to them. Obviously, we don't do them, but we respond to them. Yeah. Uh, we do a lot of planned warrant, like search warrants, and we do a lot of uh, barricades. That, that would comprise the majority of our work. Do you have a, a big component that takes you out to the water at all? Do you do any kind of operations out there? We do. So because we're a federal police agency, we have the marine mandate. British Columbia's got the, second, the world's second largest passenger ferry system. And you can actually read terrorist manuals and publications calling for attacks on these ferries. Mm-hmm. We've got some, you know, Vancouver and Delta container ports. We've got um, migrant vessels that that come in. That's we haven't seen one in years. We've got uh, you know cross border drug smuggling. So yeah, we do have a full marine armed shipboarding capability. And uh, do you overlap uh, a lot in your training with the U.S.? I'd imagine there'd be a big component with them. We we do yes. One of some of our major training partners are U.S. agencies. Okay, so can you talk a bit about uh, some of the different roles that SWAT might take part in? Because I think there's a people have a lot of misconception. They think it's just uh, kicking doors in and dealing with terrorism. But um, you actually post a lot of stuff online when it comes to the work that you do, from negotiating. To um, you do a lot of like high angle rescues. Maybe you can explain what that is a bit. Um, and then I imagine you even take part in like training other police officers. So you guys fill a lot of roles. Can you just talk about some of those? Sure. I think you know maybe the best way to say it is you know what is why does SWAT exist? And it exists because there's a need for specialist police officers to be able to accomplish missions that are outside of the capacity of regular patrol or conventional policing units to do safely. And that's not, you know, a cut against these other conventional units is they give my unit hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to buy equipment. 
We've got a lot more training time. We just have the luxury of being able to prepare for those missions. And there's not many of them. So it makes more sense to consolidate that expertise into a, a single unit. That's the only reason we do it. We always say we're specialized, but we're not special. Mm-hmm. We just have the luxury of time, of time and resources that have been given to us. So, you know, we fulfill this public safety mandate and we look at that from a very broad perspective of it's like our job is to save lives. And, you know, of course, our primary concern is to save you know, innocent people from being victimized of crime. Uh, that, that's our, our, our primary function. Uh, we also want to just keep police officers safe, but we also want to keep bad guys safe. You know, and especially we deal with a lot of people in mental health crisis. They're not actually bad guys. Mm-hmm. They're dangerous and they're in dangerous situations, but that doesn't make them a criminal. And we are very serious about how we deal with that. For example, we'll deal with someone, you know, who's an armed and barricaded, you know, firing grounds off in their house, you know, so they're armed with a firearm. We'll either negotiate them out. Sometimes we'll gas them out. Sometimes you have to use a bit of force to, to safely mitigate that threat, but then they go and get the help they need. They're not in jail for anything. We'll never see them again. So we know that it's like, if we can deal with this guy properly, we're not going to see him again. He's not a bad person. Just some things lined up poorly for him in his life. Yeah. Well, and I guess maybe you could compare it to like, you know, some doctors might have a bone saw and you guys are a scalpel, right? Like you got certain tools for certain jobs. You can't just have patrol go to everything. That does kind of uh, bring me to one point where, um, and we have this debate here, even in our service, is there's kind of patrol and then there's SWAT, but there's nothing in between. So do you think, is there room for something in, in the middle there? Because, um, and I ask that because there's a lot of times where we might have one team working and they're busy on a warrant or some other high uh, level event. And now somebody else needs help. We need help with a high risk traffic stop or, you know, some other shooting comes in and, you know, you, you need some sort of elevated level of training at this. Otherwise, it's just general patrol showing up and you get a, a very a, a great range of people in general patrol. So do you think there's like room for something in between there, like a tier two, maybe we'll call it, kind of like you would see in the military? Yeah. So, okay. This used to be how things were broken down was that SWAT was very much a light switch. It was either on or off. And the threshold to turn it on was very high. It was high because it was really expensive. It was disruptive for everyone's units to, to get their part-time SWAT guys called out. Um, and it, we, SWAT team, used to be a one-trick pony. We would come, for example, if you're a drug section or not or a narcotics detective, you have a warrant, you want SWAT to do this search warrant because you know the guys are, are armed. We were going to do one thing. We were going to do a dynamic entry, so we we're going to you know breach the door throw in some flashbangs, run through the house super fast to overtake it. We might light the couch on fire with the flashbangs. You don't know. Uh, put the guy in cuffs, hand him off to you, walk away, and you're not going to get any notes, mm-hmm. right? Like you're not going to get any reports. We're probably going to cause excessive damage. And our ability to articulate the necessity of our entry will be questionable at best. So what happens when you have that kind of service? People don't call you because you start creating, in like, sure, we mitigated the physical risk but we created all sorts of investigational risk. Mm-hmm. And then the organization doesn't like us to be deployed because we uh, we create organizational risk because now we're getting sued for causing all that damage. I feel like we have evolved quite a bit from that on-off switch to now to be a dimmer switch, where if you call me with a problem and say, Kevin, you know, I've got this problem. Can you, it's beyond my unit's ability to handle safely. I have a lot of different strategies that we can apply to do that. So by spreading out the spectrum of what SWAT can do, I think you mitigate some of that gap that mm-hmm. you're talking about. The other thing we've seen, I think, over the last 20 years is an increase in capability of patrol officers. The biggest capability increase has been carbines. Yeah. The second capability increase has been extended range impact weapons. So either beanbag shotguns uh, or a 40 mil or 37 mil launcher. Um, I suppose a third one would be, you know, CEW, so tasers. The patrol officer today has just got a ton more 
ability than you know when when I started. You just didn't have that stuff. Like it, it, it didn't exist. It was unfathomable. That said, the, that stopgap or that carryover that you're talking about um, would probably be referenced as like a containment team. So you know you get some high risk armed and barricaded. Um, you, you're you're going to uh, you know deploy your containment team, and they just have a higher level of training of of just tactics. But even those tactics, you know, the of dealing with the initial stages of these critical incidents should not be, in my opinion, above the the, the realm of a patrol officer. Like the most dangerous thing to a criminal is a squared away patrol cop. Mm-hmm. Patrol officers do I, I, like. Patrol officers do probably, they do far more police work than I ever do or SWAT ever does. Like we get called for a very niche set of circumstances. Yeah. But patrols, like the true policing, that's real policing in my view. Well, and it seems like the biggest difference is training. The amount of training, the time to do the training, it's hard as frontline to even get time off uh, uh, from your squad because you're either running at minimums or, you know, maybe courses just aren't available all the time, but the big difference is the training and having that uh, capability to contain those initial uh, threats, we'll say. Yeah. You know, this bothers me because it's an inability of police agencies to differentiate between what is cheap and what's expensive, right? Mm. And they feel like training is expensive and it is expensive. You have to make different resourcing decisions. So you know, maybe if you don't have enough people, wh- where are your priorities? Are they, you know, your boutique community outreach programs, which are important, but if you're sacrificing training for your frontline officers, you know, are they, is it more important than that? I'm not sure. That's a decision each agency has to make, but they approach training patrol officers as if it's too expensive. You hear it all the time. It's too expensive. There's too many of you. Okay. Let's go ask, you know, some of the United States agencies out there, Mm-hmm. How expensive training looks in hindsight. Now that they've, they've had these, you know, just massive incidents that spawn months of protests. Really, how expensive is that? Right. So training is expensive up until the moment is cheap. And the example I use is my ammo budget for my unit is four hundred thousand dollars a year mm-hmm. on an eighteen million dollar budget. Okay, for that's for sixty three officers. That's expensive, and it's expensive right up until the moment one of my guys. And I don't know which one it's going to be, has to take a hostage rescue shot where a guy has a human shield and the officer's got maybe a four inch available target. Oh, and by the way, he's doing it on night vision. Yeah. Now, 400,000 is very, very cheap. Yeah. So I, I just don't buy that. I don't buy the reasoning behind having poorly trained frontline officers. That's where all your organizational risk is, almost all of it's there. Yeah. When was the last time you had something, you know, when was the last time your detective bureau did something so bad that it landed you on the front page? Unless you're mishandling informants or something like that, or, you know, lying in search warrant applications, that's not where your risk is. Yeah. And I, I yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, maybe that kind of takes us right on to the, the paper that we were going to get into, talking about the comparison of Canadian and U.S. paramilitary units. Uh, can you kind of start with just how this paper came to be uh, and how it all kind of came together? Yeah, well, the, the genesis of the paper was on the Critical Incident Commander course, um, which you know every SWAT team commander in Canada has to take, or almost all. There's, there's some exceptions, but all the major teams uh, do it. Um, a guy who's an inspector from Victoria Police, Colin Brown, who's one of the smartest guys I've ever met, gave this talk on militarization of police. And essentially it's like, hey, all that talk down in the States about militarization of police, it's not applicable in Canada. And here's the reasons why it's not applicable in Canada. And so then I took you know, that seed and worked with um, a professor at a Memorial University. And we expanded, I think, did I co-wrote that with someone? I can't remember. <laughs> yeah. Do a bunch of these. Yeah. And there, this one, I think you said there was maybe a couple people on. I can't remember. I'd have to look at it. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of embarrassing. Um, oh, that's all right. Um, just talking about how this kind of came together, though. Yeah. So, so you're saying Colin Brown? Yeah. So Colin Brown started, but really, I thought that it was important to have something with academic rigor behind it to counteract the prevailing argument that you know the police were somehow fundamentally flawed 
in pursuing a militarized version of itself. And all of the academic writers tend to be left-wing, sort of left-leaning, but mm-hmm. like by far, especially in the criminology space. A lot of the things that they were writing, it's like they've never been on an op in their life. Like, what are they talking about? And you can just see this, I won't say ignorance, but I mean, there's no really better word for it, just percolating through a lot of the academic discourse on this subject. And I wanted to counteract that. But I feel that police do a bad job of this. We're not engaged in the spaces where these decisions and opinions are being made and formed and decisions are being made. Mm-hmm. And we need to be better engaged. And that the arena of those ideas is in academic journals. So it's like, okay, let's you know roll up our sleeves and, and write something that can be published. Yeah, and I 100% agree. Um, I think ignorance is the best word. And a lot of the time people say things and they're, they're not challenged on it, right? Like you're saying, they kind of operate in a certain space and whether it's uh, just disinterest in going in that space or we're, we're afraid to go in that space, um, somebody has to go in there and say like, hey, what you're saying is wrong and here are the reasons why. It's backed by these numbers, this data, these academic papers, whatever it might be, and also personal experience, which I think is the biggest part that's missing from a lot of what is said. I mean, this, these are the people that speak on you know CBC, CTV, and get their voice out there. They're the ones that are heard. We don't say anything as police. Well, then what you know? What are this? What's the public left to think, right? So. Uh, some of the stuff that you had in this paper was really good. And I'll, I'll, f- I'll figure out a way to get this linked so that people can look at it. We'll have to, I'll have to work with you on this. So um, one of the things you were talking about was the increased standardization in training, uh, specialization and protocols between Canada and the US. So you can, can you kind of flesh out some of that? Uh, um, and I, I have a few stats here that'll I'll bring up, but I'll let you kind of start with what's the difference between Canada and U.S. when it comes to the standardization of things like training and protocols? Yeah. If Do you mind if I hit one quick topic first? Because yeah. you said it and it kind of just like this yep. light bulb went off. You talk about those opinions that are formed in a vacuum of real life context. And I'll give you an example. So most of the militarization work started from a guy named Peter Kraska who's um, a professor, criminology guy down in the States. And in the 80s, he started hanging out with some SWAT teams and wrote some papers about it. And one of his big complaints is how SWAT teams were proliferating. And he's like, look, they proliferated. You know, it was like X number of teams in 1982. And, you know, it increased 4,000% from, you know, until the year 2000. It's like, you know, in the absence of context, that sounds really, oh, well, this is very alarming. It's mm-hmm. like, no, zero SWAT teams. It was a new thing in the 70s and 80s. No one had them. It became an industry standard and all operate, all police forces are obligated to follow industry standards. Look what happened to the RCMP when everyone got carbines and the RCMP was too slow in rolling their carbine out. They got charged under the Canada Labor Code and they got convicted under the Canada Labor Code and they got fined a million dollars. That's organizational risk. You can't breach industry standards. So Krask is making this conclusion that this proliferation of SWAT teams is evidence of evil militarization. And is actually his basic premise is, is a sound one. He says, listen, if you go to a country and you can't tell the difference between the police and the military, that's probably not a great place to be. And I agree with him on that. That's not wrong. But that police uh, uh, agencies have SWAT teams and that they are proliferating is not, in my view, evidence or does not support that conclusion that we're on that trend. So you talk about, um, about increased standardization. I think you have to look at the fundamental differences in how policing is provided in the States versus Canada. In Canada, there's like 180 police agencies total. Mm -hmm. Right, the U.S. has eight times our population. You would expect to have them to have, you know, eight times the number of police agencies. They don't. They have a hundred times the number of police agencies. They have eighteen thousand police agencies. Most of them are really, really small. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of laugh because you know I, I forget the percentage. I think it's like something like 
75% have under 25 officers. So I have this here. Um, oh, good. So better prepared than me. <laughs> this is one of the stats that I wanted to bring up. So they have 18,000, roughly 18,000 law enforcement agencies. 49% of that are less than 10 officers, less than 10 officers. Only 14% are greater than 49 uh, officers, which I think is the, the more shocking stat. So the vast majority of police services down there are like, you know, 20, 30 people, give or take, which is pretty surprising. Um, when you look at Canada, though, like you're saying, uh, there's 100, roughly 176 municipal services, which police about 64% of the population. So theirs is like every small town you go to, you're getting a new sheriff, a new policy, a new standard um, right across, you know, everywhere down the highway. So yeah, I could see that fragmentation there. Well, and and that was actually, you know, if you look at the Ferguson, Missouri riots, the DOJ, DOJ did a big analysis afterwards. And that was one of the conclusions they said, I think they had like 50 agencies show up and they're like, they all have different deployment protocols, different equipment, different command structures. They can't talk to each other on the radio, something like that. I mean, it just can't happen in Canada. There isn't 50 agencies around to, to come to a, a file. Yeah. It just doesn't, it just doesn't exist. You know, you're going to get maybe three or four, maybe. Well, and one of the things I remember seeing was, uh, the attack on Parliament Hill. And when the guy went running in and they had all the, the people responding, all the, the services, but there were people showing up in plain clothes and just have like a tack vest on that says police on the back or whatever their unit might be. And for me, like, and, and I know the training that we get, but it's like, if somebody shows up in plain clothes and I'm like, eh, I don't know if you're a police officer and I'm in full uniform, you're getting treated as a threat. So I could see the U.S. like, what a complete shit show that would be. 50 agencies showing up and people dressed in all kinds of things and armed all different ways in, in a place where, you know, maybe they were allowed open carry there. Like, you really don't know who's who in this whole debacle, right? It, it is, a, I, I can't imagine operating in that environment. And here's the other thing we need to map onto this is that policing in the States is much harder than in Canada. It's much more violent. So for every one police officer in Canada shot and killed, they have like 50. Mm -hmm. So you, you like, you know, when, when we talk about how the United States has increased police militarization, which by the way, what does that even mean? Militarization? Like, you know, people lament, they pound their fists on the table. If the police get so, you know, quote unquote, military grade equipment. It's like anyone who's ever served in the military will tell you that that is not a, a glowing endorsement of the equipment, right? It's, yeah. like, <laughs> it's like made by the lowest bidder. It's made to be super robust. But like, what does that even mean? And, and what about that makes it inherently bad? Again, it's like, it, it's, it's a, a shallow argument to drive towards the conclusion that, hey, you do want to be able to tell the difference between police and military. That's a good thing to strive for. But the fact that we use a common piece of equipment in a completely different context, yes, is 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 silly. I'll give you an example. You know, um, once you can look at this in the news. Um, we, our team, dropped a forty millimeter uh, multi launcher out of the back of a truck. You know, we found it, <laughs> but you know, the guys, the the back gate broke, and it was a he was a, you know he paid some penance for that. But it's in the media. It's it's kind of a you know obviously suboptimal thing and it's never happened before or since, but people are human and, and things happen. So what goes on the media is the police lose a grenade launcher. Mm -hmm. Well, that's actually what it is. I mean, I could put, I suppose, grenades in that thing and shoot grenades. I don't have grenades. We use it for uh, foam, foam rounds, like a, a, as an impact device so that the guy with a knife, I don't have to shoot him with a real bullet. I can shoot him with the foam round and incapacitate him and then take him into custody without him dying. Yeah. Like, it, it, but that's a militarized thing. It's derided in the public discourse. I, I think, again, without context. Yeah. And you're, you know, I think people just get, um, either people come at this like in two ways, two ways is one is uh, either ignorance and then they just bite on to whatever's being said out there, the headlines, um, the clickbait, all that stuff. The other side is, for some reason, they've got 
a bone to pick with law enforcement and see that as maybe a career in just going after law enforcement when end of the day, the big difference between the military and the police is, you know, the policy and the procedures and the things we do and the reasons we do it for. Um, Also, I, I think maybe people should, for context, compare like the Canadian military uh, to the U.S. military, very different. And the Canadian military is like mostly humanitarian missions. So is being compared to the military really a bad thing? Uh, I don't I don't see it as that. Um, so maybe the context is uh, completely missing from these arguments. But um, just kind of on the standardization stuff, and something you brought up a bit earlier was how it's more violent in the U.S. And one of the points I wrote down here... Um, just in preparation for having this talk was something, uh, maybe there's more SWAT in the U.S. due to a few things. One is population density. Uh, Another thing I was kind of looking at in the stats and different things was the higher crime rates and then also culture. And with each one of those points, um, just kind of fleshing those out, I was thinking like, well, population density, um, from anything I've read, generally you have more crime, more people living on top of each other. There's more human interactions. If I just live in a field by myself and nobody's around, like Canada is a very vast country, way less dense. People just come across each other less. You see higher crime in cities than in, on, you know, some rural back road. So maybe it's, that leads to more crime. Um, Higher crime rates are, you might tend to see some more violence. And then also the culture down there, their culture is built on being rebels, right? That's the whole country was born out of a rebellion, whereas Canada kind of ho-hummed our way into quasi-independence and stuff. So I think um, there's a lot more context that people are missing when they take those simple one or two line arguments and try to say, you know, we treat uh, groups of people the, the same way as They've been treated in the U.S., um, uh, whether we're militarizing the police for whatever reason. I think people are missing a, a, the greater argument. And whether that's out of laziness or they, like I said, have a bone to pick and want to spin things. So what are your kind of thoughts on maybe that? Sorry, it was a big, long rant, but <laughs> <laughs> um, just the more violence kind of comes out of those different things. So population density, higher crime and culture leading to us maybe needing more of a militarization aspect. Yeah. So the interesting thing with my interaction with the U.S. agencies is that you have a very broad spectrum of SWAT capability. So you've got some teams on the upper end of the spectrum that are just phenomenal, incredibly professional and any city would be lucky to have them. I give you some names like LAPD SWAT. LAPD SWAT, every one of their operators is also a trained negotiator. Wow. No, I, I don't know many teams that have that. Like, like they just run a great program. L, uh, Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, their Special Enforcement Bureau, fantastic. Pros, pros, pros. Miami Dade, incredible. Uh, FBI hostage rescue team on the federal, incredible. Like, there's all these teams that are just, frankly, outstanding. And, um, but, you have the other spectrum. So you have those small agencies who want to have their own team. It's like, you've got 30 guys, how, like 30 police officers total in your agency. How are you going to have 12 on your team? And, and how much training can you afford them? I was recently on a course um, with 30 American agencies. And I was shocked at the number of agencies whose SWAT teams get less than eight hours of training a month. Wow. So our training standard is probably around 50 to 60 hours a month. Mm-hmm. And most full-time teams would be at least, you know, the minimum, the, the industry standard is 40. If you want to be, be a, a, an upper tier team, how do you get operational competence at that level? And the answer is you don't like, don't get me wrong. There's probably some squared away teams who, and, and, uh, and these officers, like they want to do a good job. They're probably great officers, but when you're only give, you know, when you're not given the equipment or the time to hone the skills, no one can be good. Right. Yeah. And, if you want to read a great book about this, I would suggest reading Radley Balko's book, Rise of the Warrior Cop. So he that book came very, very popular right after Ferguson, Missouri. And it's all about the militarization of police. And when you read it, it is just a litany of 
deployments gone bad. So deploying SWAT teams for a barbering without a license incident or doing a, a dynamic drug hit on a place without having any surveillance beforehand. So you don't see that the suspect actually isn't there, but another family is visiting. And so when you throw your flashbang in through the window, it lands in the visiting baby's crib mm. and you get the baby boo-boo incident, which you can look up online. You can find it. When you read his book, you're like, you kind of got to go, oh, it kind of has a point, you know? Yeah. And in Canada, because our policing is structured differently, we tend not to have as many outliers. Look, there are some agencies in Canada that by virtue of their geography have no other option but to try to support a part-time SWAT program with very limited resources. And, and, and they do it as professionally as they can. Are they going to be the same as, you know, Edmonton's team? Mm. No, they are not. And is that going to probably result at in someday in a bad outcome? Well, it certainly could. Um, but generally, generally we, we have greater standardization of standards. And, and like you said, I think, you know, I was talking to an American friend of mine, I was trying to explain to him, He's like, well, what do you mean you do city policing? You're a federal agency. I'm like, yeah, yeah, we do federal, provincial, and municipal policing. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, can you imagine the FBI, you know, being your state police and your city police force, like a federal agency? And again, it's that, you know, I don't know if you call it a distrust of the federal government, but they certainly want to see a, a greater separation yeah. between levels of government. He's like, that's that's insane. That would never fly. I'm like, you're right, but there's advantages to it. Like you get a certain economy of scale that comes with it. Yeah. There's huge advantages. Yeah. And this is a kind of runs into previous conversations I've had with uh, uh, people from the US uh, about not even just policing, but just their media or how they do things in general. And they they play in like 90 10 in their goalposts, whereas Canada's like 60 40. We like to just kind of play like a soft middle ground here they just go to the extremes, right? And like you're saying, there's that distrust. So it's like, no, we're all going to have our own you know, SWAT teams and do what we want because I don't trust the next guy. So yeah, I mean, you get you get kind of that that variation in everything. Um, and on hey, some- Before of, you go on, yeah, yeah. you talk about media. There's an important thing to uh, understand about media is that the stories we read in the media are not necessarily reflective of actual public opinion. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, they are you know, the most fringe element of that. And I'll give you an example. So you, we read in the media all the time. So every time a police agency buys a new armored vehicle, you read about in the media, oh, like, this is awful and they shouldn't be doing that. And da, da, da. Okay, take that armored vehicle, go to the gas station and fill it up with gas. Every, I, I've done this, literally done this. Everyone comes up to you. Yeah. Oh, that thing's so cool. That's awesome. What is that? They love it. But it's always that, you know, the 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 vocal fringe opinion that gets the most most attention. I, I have a, a great story about this. We we had to go over to a community called Seashell uh, for a suicide. There's a guy suicidal, poor guy. Uh, you know, he's armed with a rifle, let called 911, said what he was gonna do. Um, but he was armed with a rifle, and you don't know what people are going to do, right? Sometimes they, they don't want to do it themselves. So they'll try and position the police in such a way that the police have to do it for them and bad things can happen. So you have to approach this with caution. So the detachment called us to respond to the call. We had to take the ferry over. At the time, our uniforms were like a multi-cam, like a, like a disrupted camouflage pattern. We've since switched just to straight green, but at the time that was what it was. Mm -hmm. And we brought our armored vehicle with us because the guy's armed. Unfortunately, we found you know, him deceased and, and and we couldn't do anything because it was already happened by the time we got there. On the way back, we're waiting for the ferry to go back. And so we're eating ice cream cones and kids are climbing on the armored vehicle. Yeah. We get back and there's a complaint lodged. And the complaint is lodged with the commanding officer saying, you know, that the police took over the, you know, essentially invaded the, the island and took over the ferry terminal and was intimidating everybody. <laughs> And so this, the commanding officer is telling me this. I'm like, hey, you want to see a picture? And I show him a picture of the team literally eating ice cream cones with kids on the, on the yeah. armored vehicle. But that story doesn't get told. Of the you know, 100 people waiting for the ferry, it's the one guy in the corner just you know, glowering at the police, being all mad, yeah. right? that, that, that becomes the narrative. Yeah. And it's not close. So, so I always read these things. I'm like, I don't think that's what my neighbor thinks. I don't think that's what my you know, kids, friends, parents think. I just don't. I've, I don't run across it a whole lot. 
Yeah. And you know what, if anything, um, my own experience has been my neighbors ask more questions because they're actually genuinely curious and they'll bring up media things and be like, I don't see how that's even possible. I'm like, well, even a normal day-to-day person can see that, you know, see through that. So, um, you're not wrong. You're, you know, I, I think, um, people definitely, I, I know a lot of cops don't watch the news anymore for those exact reasons. So, um, yeah. Well, what does it say? You know, the media sells opinions, not information, something like that. <laughs> um, so one of the things I wanted to kind of get to when you're talking about the armored car, especially, uh, was the equipment, uh, acquisition of the equipment that you use and the difference that you mentioned here in this paper. Um, so can you talk a bit about how, uh, Canadian services get those armored vehicles and then what it's like in the U S for them with these, uh, surplus transitions and grants. Yeah. So at the time we wrote it, this was certainly under a lot of scrutiny and I think it's changed kind of swung back and forth, depending who's in, you know, who's sitting in the big chair down there. Um, but down in the States, they had a thing called the 1033 program and they still actually have a lot of federal grants. So any agency, regardless of size, can apply for surplus military equipment. Again, asterisks. I don't know if this is still true, but it certainly was a, a few years ago. Small agencies can also apply for federal grants. So if you go on, you know, the leading uh, uh, armored vehicle manufacturer website, like right on the front page is a click here for grant information and assistance. Like they have someone whose job it is to help agencies mm-hmm. write for federal grants. The result of this is a lot of these small agencies we're talking about, you know, the ones with less than 50 officers, less than 25 officers, less than 10 officers can get an armored vehicle. So, and, you know, and and that kind of gives them the capacity to have a SWAT team, Mm -hmm. right? It, it, it removes the, uh, it removes the barrier to entry to the SWAT game. It makes it very low entry. Now people like to complain about the small agency having the, the, you know, the, the AMRAP, until there's a flood and that's what they're using to rescue people, then no one seems to mind. But by and large, that was the big, uh, that was the big focus of a lot of the media attention was these armored vehicles in Canada getting, I mean, we do used to be able to get some surplus military vehicles, but we don't, we don't want them anymore because there's commercially available products that suit our needs much better. So there's a few agencies that still have, you know, the old Grizzlies or Cougars. we got a couple in our parking lot that we're, we're, you know, working on getting rid of, cause we just don't use them anymore. Cause mm. they're not great. They don't do the job we need them to do, but it was very rare even to begin with, to get those. That meant that police agencies had to buy their own. That meant, so, I mean, these things cost, you know, well now for $500,000. So we have a much higher barrier to entry into the SWAT game in Canada, than the United States. So now that means that SWAT in Canada in general, again, there's a few exceptions, is limited to the larger agencies or because of the cost of it, agencies have to look for an economy of scale. Mm -hmm. So they amalgamate their SWAT program with other nearby jurisdictions and they share those resources. I mean, this has a pretty big impact on how, on on the ability of small agencies to have SWAT teams because you don't, you know, there's a certain culture in SWAT teams for sure uh, and I think it's less so now, but you know, it, you know, it used to be a pretty aggressive mindset. I would be cautious in, in allowing such an aggressive mindset to propagate throughout an entire agency. Like if 40% of your agency is SWAT members and you're giving them all that training, if you're not properly counteracting that with, tr- you know, expectations of professionalism, de-escalation training, like the LAPD SWAT model is a fantastic example of that. I think you're asking for trouble. The other thing is, if half your agency is on the SWAT team, what are your standards to get in? Mm-hmm. So there's agencies in the States, 17% of teams in the States don't even have a physical standard for their SWAT teams. Wow. There isn't even a physical standard. Now, I'm not saying a physical standard is like, you know, the two of the best teams in the world that I know of actually don't have physical standards. Oh, really? But they're, yeah, to get on, they do, but ongoing, they don't. Mm. But they have a, a culture of, of, of team accountability and a culture of excellence mm-hmm. where you would not dream of being unfit. One of the teams, they're a European team. Uh, they look like they all come out of a test tube. They're terrifying. They're all like <laughs> six foot. So I, I'll put it this way. We're, we're training with, I think there were six of them. One of them was an ex-Olympic athlete in track cycling. And I couldn't tell which one he was. Like someone's like, <laughs> one of those guys went to the Olympics. I'm like, I can't. 
tell who, who like they all looked like they could go to the Olympics for that. Um, so it's not a guarantee, but if you have no physical standards or, you know, some of the standards we see is like a mile and a half run in 18 minutes or something or 15, like, like what? They like, should do it in half that time. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, half might be a little ambitious, but yeah, I mean, you like, if, if half your agency's on the team, what are your training standards? Mm-hmm. What are your performance standards? You're not going to be able to enforce anything. There's too much. Yeah. So it's, I think it's a dangerous thing and it has downsides. There's advantages. You're talking about that gap between patrol and SWAT. It, that, you know, if you have your own team yeah. and there's always someone working that has that training, it, it, there are advantages. We can't pretend there's not. Yeah. Well, and maybe that, um, just for time's sake here, maybe that brings me on to one of the other things I want to get to was, um, a post that you had on LinkedIn. Um, this is where I see most of your work. So um, it was uh, a posting here about policies, procedures, and training. And then I'll, I'll kind of read this and then I'll read your response. And it just has to essentially do with policy replacing training. So this was a post by uh, Paul Taylor. Uh, it says he's an assistant professor. I don't know what, but his stuff was really good. Um, So it says basically policies, procedures, and training are how administrators, managers, and trainers, no matter how experienced they are, imagine high-risk complex work is or should be done from positions that are insulated from the risks, complexities, and uncertainties of the work itself. Workers must translate and transfer the the, uh, abstract, overly simplistic, linear, and incomplete policies, procedures, and training of imagined work to the complex, high-risk, unpredictable problems of actual work in order to achieve good outcomes. So uh, just kind of like a summary of that is policy and procedure are administrators imagining how a high-risk, complex event is maybe handled. Then the frontline person has to translate that to that actual complex, high-risk thing in front of them and achieve a good outcome. Your response, I thought, was, Awesome. I immediately screenshotted this and uh, saved it just for this conversation was you said, uh, I think these dangers are particularly acute when police agencies try to use policy as a replacement to training, especially when that policy keeps getting more and more restrictive to try to prevent the previous bad thing that happened. So kind of what I saw from that was you're essentially removing the officer's ability to think critically on the fly and in dynamic environments. Is is that kind of what you were going for with that? And can you talk a bit about this policy replacing training? Yeah, well, we talked earlier about how expensive it is to train to, to train people, right? So mm-hmm. if I'm an administrator, what's the easiest way for me, you know, to try to make you to do the job properly next time? It's not to offer training, that's expensive. It's to write a new policy and then email that policy out. <laughs> And I think it's a really bad habit because, you know, our policies then, you know, what did I read? Some, someone commented, I think it might've even been on the same thread or something like, you know, policies are meant to be guard, guardrails, not railroad tracks, right? It's not the mm-hmm. track you go on. It's, it's, you know, it's the track you, it's the guardrails where you don't go, you know, off-road right on, keeps you on track a little bit. And yeah, I mean, the, the complexity of environment that we deal with is just, no one is going to be able to recall all the 10 step procedures for this thing and 20 step procedures for that thing. I mean, humans just don't work that way. So I see it very often that, you know, some bad thing will happen. And it's like that bad thing might never happen again, but you know, it was a real outlier event. Yeah. And then we start creating restrictive policy for outlier events and you start painting yourself in a corner because, you know, now you, now I, when I'm on the road, I have to think of the, you know, the 10, 10 different policy pieces on impaired driving that happened that, you know, might not apply. It just makes a mess of everything. Just, I don't know, teach people to do the job, right. Teach them what the fundamental concepts are and then train them to, and give them experience applying those in, in a broad context. You'll be fine. Well, and if somebody makes a mistake, uh, like a genuine mistake, you know, they're not out there being malicious and, um, you know, you go basically, I don't know if it's like you have to punish them. I don't want to say punish, but obviously there's 
some consequences for your actions, whatever they might be, but give that person more training then, right? And I could see this again, might get out and people go, well, somebody messes up and you're rewarding them with training. It's like, no, I, I don't think they need to be fired and I want them to do better next time. I want them to succeed. So let's give them the proper tools so that that event doesn't happen again, right? But then to go create policy is that blanket on everybody. Now, everybody's got to kind of wear that because you're saying, well, nobody's allowed to do this now, or we're changing these things. So everybody has to ask permission next time. It's like, well, maybe everybody already knew that or would have acted differently given the set of circumstances. But I see these policies that come out. Um, We have a lot of things with like criminal flights. So when a car takes off, there's a lot of restrictions around what you can and can't do, but you start to get um, management and I'll say management intentionally, not leadership. Management will just fall back to policy and say, oh, uh, can't do this. So just, you know, nobody do anything. And it's like, well, that's not the right way to handle things. We can't use policy and procedure as a crutch. Like you're saying, it's, it's a guidelines. You still have to, if you want to be in those positions of leadership, you have to be able to make decisions at critical times. Sometimes you're going to be wrong and you own that, but it still doesn't mean that you just use it as a crutch and just say, we never do anything. And look, everybody survived at the end of the day. It's like, well, if everybody's just getting away <laughs> with everything, um, that's not really good either. So, Okay, man, there's a lot to unpack on this. Yeah. So first of all, I think um, some managers and executive feel like policy gives them protection mm-hmm. because if let's say I'm the boss and, and you're the constable and I say, uh, you can't do X, Y, and Z, I can just kind of brush my hands and say, well, if he does it, that's on him. The organization will be protected because he's the one who broke the rules. It, yeah. That is an illusion of protection. It's, it's, it's a false sense of security because if I haven't trained you not to chase the car in circumstances that you're not supposed to, and you go chase the car in circumstances that you're not supposed to, I'm still as the employer vicariously liable for your actions. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't actually protect me at all if I yeah. just you know put this policy down and not train you to carry it out properly. And that's what we see. We see it all the time. So what happens is you go and chase the car that you're not supposed to. So I now revamp my policy and make it a little more restrictive and a little more restrictive. Now, that said, I would say that it is absolutely within the purview of you know, the police chief or the police board or whoever to come up with policies. Hey, what do we think is a good risk proposition on chases, for on pursuits, for instance? We know that, you know, People without driver's license, like 14-year-old kids without driver's license, will take off from the police and just drive crazy until they get into a car crash. We also know that you know drug dealers will just take off if, if we have a no-chase policy. People just will, the real criminals will also stop chasing. And then sometimes they hit innocent people. It is, the, in, in fact, the chief's job to weigh that and say, hey, this mm-hmm. is how I view, you know, this is how I weigh it out, and this is the why I'm putting this policy in place. And I think you have to sell it to the front line very carefully yeah, because it can never be about, you know, uh, me restricting your actions, right? Like that can't be how, or it's, you know, like, Hey, this is going to be your fault if it happens, or I'm just protecting myself. The way I say policy is guys, policy is a shield. It's a shield that I'm putting out and it's to protect you, but it only helps if you're behind it. If you're out over there outside the protection of the shield, I'm not going to be able to help you. I can't give you top cover. My job is to give you top cover. If you abide by the policy, mm-hmm. I can give you top cover all day long. If you don't, I'm going to be very limited in the protection I can I can afford you. So when you put like the, the reason we have these no pursuit policies is here's the example. Here's the case where it resulted in lawsuits. Here's where, in the cases where it resulted in police officers going to jail for criminal negligence. And I don't want that to happen to you. And so here's the limits that, that we have prescribed. I think if you do it that way, it's a much more palatable than just saying, you're not yeah. allowed to do this anymore. Email out the new emergency vehicle operations procedure 3.7 says, you know, everyone signed this. So now if you chase someone, mm, you know, you're going to be in trouble. Yeah. You get more buy-in. It doesn't help anyone. Yeah. You get more buy-in. 
Yeah. Well, well and that's, that's the other thing about policy is policy can give you a guaranteed minimum performance, but it cannot deliver high performance. Well, let's revisit physical standards. If I went out to my team and said, guys, the new physical standards, you have to run a mile and a half in nine minutes. Well, some of the guys are going to pass. Some of the guys are going to fail. Like nine minute mile and a half, that's a very high performance. But I can't mandate that because, you know, Jimmy, the, the power lifter, isn't going to run a mile and a half in, five, in nine minutes. Mm-hmm. So you need to have like, but I can guarantee a minimum performance. So I can say your mile and a half has to be 11 minutes. It's, it can guarantee a minimum performance to have that accountability. You'll never get high performance from policy. You can't mandate it. It's got to be culture. So now we have you know team accountability. Hey, which platoon can have the the lowest mile and a half average? Mm-hmm. Now they're going to start training. So that's that's what you know the high caliber teams I've talked about before who don't actually have written standards still get that 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 incredible performance. So I think it goes the same with with everything. It's like you can you can set the low bar. But you want high bar performance, and you can't do that through policy. But we see that's what agencies try to do because it's much easier. It's the they think it's the easy way. It's the impossible way. Yeah, no, I hundred percent agree. I think it was a good answer. So um, I want to make sure I give you an uh, opportunity to let people know how they can follow you and your work. So where can people find you? Yeah, so probably the best place right now is on LinkedIn. So it's just Kevin Sear, C-Y-R, um, guy in green, the bald guy in green uh, <laughs> is my profile picture. And uh, I, I just kind of like to write about current events, leadership, decision-making. Uh, sometimes I have cool SWAT videos that I, that I think are fun. And uh, it's nothing special, but if you're looking for me, that's where I am. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on today. Uh, if you hang on the line for two seconds, I'll stop the recording. But yeah, thank you for being here. All right. Thanks very much for having me.